What if I could describe something that I wanted? It could be, a, I could describe a salt shaker. I could describe a car. What if I could use that or augmented reality or virtual reality and have a computer system with AI behind it, natural language processing, another number of computer vision, number of other technologies that are all exponentially accelerating and converging in their uh, progress. Put all that together, what if I could, so to speak, talk to Ken? I don't need any specialized knowledge. I may not have an engineering degree anymore. So, but now I can tell it what I want. Maybe by logging into a website with a, a maybe a verbal version of a chat GPT interface, have a conversation about it, and that spits me back out a model and says, hey, is this what you want? Welcome to American Dreams. My guest today is Keith Gargiulo. Keith, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Keith, uh, you know, I'm excited. We uh, we had a brief meeting at the A360 conference in Southern California at the Torina Resort and uh, learning about AI and also, uh, uh, you know, the, the proper way to age on longevity. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and in, in a brief meeting there, you know, we're able to, to make some connections. So I'm excited that you're coming on today's show. We can learn more about your model and, uh, you know, a business model and how you got to where you are today. So for the listeners, uh, uh, can you give us uh, a, a, a timeline of, from school until, uh, you know, getting up to where you are today? Sure. So school for me in college was all mechanical engineering, undergrad and grad school that was in, in Rensselaer in Troy, New York, and then down at Virginia Tech in Virginia. Uh, interspersed with that was work. I worked at Pratt & Whitney as a co-op. I worked as an engineer at a nuclear power plant between undergrad and grad school. During grad school, I took some time, did some machine design and, and shop floor work at a company that made fiber, makes fiber optic cable in Virginia. Then after Since then, I've been at a company called PTC. Uh, as well as my uh, wife and I, uh, well, my wife's a veterinarian, so we own some veterinary practice as, uh, interests as well, and uh, a number of other things on the side. We have a horse farm, and some rental properties, you know, lots of things going on, uh, and you know, a few other projects besides that. That's the last 30-odd years in just a minute. Well, you know, so let, let, I want to uh, delve into uh, the, uh, the PTC. The, you know, currently you're serving as vice president of uh, and you you have a title of customer success. So tell tell me about what is it? How do you define success for the customer? So PTC is a software company, and we sell our software on subscription. And the only way, whether it's Netflix or anything else that you subscribe to, you keep paying if you're happy, and you're getting what you wanted out of it. So our the job of the customer success organization, which is very large, uh, is to help our you know, tens of thousands of customers that we either have directly through PTC or through our large partner network, make sure that they're actually getting value out of the software they bought from us, primarily so they get value, then certainly within our own business interests, so they renew their subscription and, and continue to be a happy customer and ideally expand and use some more of our technology. And the technology that PTC provides, what is that? Software for engineering, manufacturing, and field service. It's, all of it includes a layer of AI, uh, all of it includes a layer of uh, Internet of Things, or IoT technology, uh, both as a platform and as purpose-built solutions that you can deploy automatically, as well as a, a heavy component of augmented reality, All, but very much for companies that build physical things, what we call discrete manufacturing. Some applications also in process manufacturing, 
like a refinery is a process manufacturing a company that makes toys or missiles or a car is discrete manufacturing you know we're seeing we're seeing a lot of digitization uh in the industry the internet of things and how does digitization impact the business owners uh, in, completely and entirely and in every way including whether or not they're still going to be a business owner in 10 years uh, the degree to which they as a business owner you can anticipate the depth of change that's already started and it, it is one of the, you know to, to steal one of peter's terms it is one of those things that it has been deceptive for years and is now becoming disruptive and, and we'll move on from there the ability to see through the buzzwords and so forth and actually understand how applying some sort of digital technology in your business is is going to be fundamental for anybody that's in the, the fields that we work with and it's going to be fundamental to fields beyond the ones that ptc directly works with for example in my, in my wife's veterinary practice there's a number of things there that have nothing to do with discrete manufacturing but the same concepts of digitization apply AI is one example of digitization. We're already using that uh, for experimentation with reading radiographs. In human medicine, there are a number there are a number of areas where AI is already better than human doctors or human radiologists at reading cer for certain kinds of cancer and detecting it with more accuracy earlier. And those sorts of things will continue to be a trend. The and will become uh, they'll, they'll expand in two dimensions. There'll be more places where it's true. And it'll become more true in all those places. That makes sense. And that for that, well, the statement you got to think about that. But I, I, yeah, I got, I got it. I got it. So when you um, when you're looking at the impact on manufacturing and and digitization, I mean, you know, the the old line, uh, the old school was, you know, hey, we're used to our line manufacturing. Uh, you know, uh, do will you walk a person? through a manufacturing process to show how digitization can impact them and, and improve their process? Yeah, for sure. And, and if you use manufacturing specifically to mean a shop floor where 3D printing is happening or metal chips are being made on a lathe and, and, or uh, a, form, a formative process like a press is being used, that, that part of manufacturing, absolutely. And in fact, a, a lot of what I personally worked on the past two years uh, was a, a purpose-built uh, IoT application using our technology that is specifically for closed loop problem solving on a factory using automated data from the machines. Uh, we're actually, some of our more cutting edge stuff is looking at how you use what humans are doing. Humans don't have an ethernet port. We can't plug in and, and read from a PLC and, and, and identify problems, but you can use some technologies that exist today that to start to take a look at how you would uh, understand really how your labor effect in this is, how safe people are being is one of the primary Actually, the very first use case we've talked about, how, how can you increase human safety in a factory by using some of these technologies? That That's pretty leading edge. Other things that where it's more connected to machines, that's you know, in production and deployment. It sounds leading edge to be able to say that without much human input, you can use a system to, to point out in your factory where the bottleneck is, when you how much you're affecting it by your continuous improvement process. And after you've made a difference, where did the next bottleneck show up and have that largely automated for you and humans are still in the loop so they take action against what the system recommends to do but you aren't um kind of peanut buttering your continuous improvement efforts over everything in your factory but really able to focus on the actual bottleneck so over on my desk if anybody's worked in manufacturing you've probably read the goal or at least heard of it I've got a second edition over here and i've got a fifth edition somewhere else 
it's that that idea of theory of constraints and how do you apply that using technology, not just lots of manual labor and spreadsheets and stopwatches. You know, it's it's interesting with the uh, the emergence of artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, it, we're we're just at the very beginning uh, right now, but if if you to look in your crystal ball and into the future, how do you foresee artificial intelligence impacting engineering and manufacturing sure. into the future? So I can use a little bit of current state that will sound like future ball, uh, like crystal ball or future prediction. Uh, today, right now, you can model things. You can pull up a CAD system. We our PTC invented 3D CAD 30 plus years ago. And, you know, we have competitors now and there, there's lots of software out there in which you can do 3D CAD. Most of it involves a human using a mouse, a keyboard, and a flat screen to give instructions to the computer and create shapes and modify those shapes so you end up with something physical in the computer in 3D that you can then manufacture. And it's that's traditional modeling in CAD. What you can do with AI, which we, we can, we've done this for actually years now, is you can tell the system what you want as an outcome. Um, I am working on a component of a spacesuit, and my design constraints are needed to be as light as possible, has to have certain frequency requirements, has to meet certain temperature requirements, etc. All, all the things that go into the design spec. That's not a, a shape that you model in a CAD system. That's an important outcome of what you built. I have a certain space constraint. You, you can tell this, the system those things tell it how you want to manufacture it, or even say, I, I don't know how I want to manufacture it. I might 3D print it. I might mill it. And the system, our, our software, will be able to use AI to give you a range of options that no human would have ever come up with. I, I've used this analogy before, and I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm talking about myself when I say this. If humans designed fish, every fish would look like a submarine, because that's what we get. That's what we understand. But in nature, things don't all look the same, and they're still equal. They, they're Tuned to their you know, biomimicry is, is the term that's used for that in engineering. How do you take things that nature has developed and try to emulate those in the physical systems that we build? Well, using AI or generative design, as we call it, everybody's heard about ChatGPT and GPT-4. That's a generative system using a large language model. We, For years, we've done that, use the same term for physical design. You give it the constraints, you give it the outcomes you want, and the system suggests the shape to you which is almost always a shape that a human couldn't come up with or couldn't like, physically figure out how to model, even though mathematically the software can handle it because the system does it for you. So that's a that's an example of, that sounds futuristic, but is actually something we've been able to do for a while. Uh, another example that is pretty cutting edge is, I'll go back to a factory. Everybody in factories understands uh, continuous improvement process and a lot of and people understand lean manufacturing and those principles. That's a largely manual process, and it's a large. It's very effective. It works very well, but it takes a lot of human effort to do. Usually, you can apply AI and have AI take a look at all the same sorts of inputs and have it suggest to you where your problems actually are and you ought, where the places you ought to go look first. Like we did an experiment like that with a beer company in Europe, uh, where they had certain uh, defects and, and low quality showing up with lots of kind of scrap rate. Call it. They were scrapping beer, and they were unable to determine the pattern. People who are very expert at the process were not able to take a look at what was going on and understand why, where was this coming from? We applied AI and we were able to use the AI, was able to figure out what was the fairly complex combination of factors that led to that scrap rate happening, able to take action on it and improve it. So that's 
these are those are two examples of right now actually even though you asked for crystal ball crystal ball yeah for me and i this is a this is one that i think would be great doing design today if you want to make a physical product i'm talking to you looking at a laptop my screen's next to me there's a speakerphone here all the physical things around us someone did that kind of traditional or maybe generative design that i just described to design it and eventually make it a product put in a store and you bought it from amazon or wherever you bought it from what if i could do what i'm doing right now i'm you know off camera my hands are waving a little bit i talk with my hands a lot i'm talking to you we're having this discussion what if i could describe something that i wanted it could be as I could describe a salt shaker. I could describe a car. What if I could use that or augmented reality or virtual reality and have a computer system with AI behind it, natural language processing, another number computer vision, a number of other technologies that are all exponentially accelerating and converging in their uh, progress. Put all that together. What if I could, so to speak, talk to CAD? I don't need any specialized knowledge. I may not have an engineering degree anymore. So, but now I can tell it what I want, maybe by logging into a website with a, a maybe a verbal version of a chat GPT interface, have a conversation about it. And that spits me back out a model and says, Hey, is this what you want? No, I'd like to modify that. I want it blue. Uh, okay. Now actually it needs to be three inches wider, or I need a, I need a four centimeter hole over here on this face. What if you could have that sort of conversation and totally democratize product design? Instead of it being in the hands of just companies that have a lot of infrastructure and a lot of capital and a lot of very specialized people that know how to do a very specialized job because they went to four or six or more years of engineering school and you have seven different flavors of engineer that it takes to put together a complex mechatronic project uh, or even a simple one. Uh, you, know, you can make a, a three-part harmonic balancer and it still takes several people to try to figure out the, the mechanics and dynamics of that. What if you could totally democratize that? What if technology could put the power to build things or design things in anyone's hands? And then what if you could manufacture it in economically in runs of one or 10? Because you're the, you're the only person who needs it, but you really need it. And if it's not for sale, you're kind of stuck today. So when I, when I think about where the future of product design would go, that's the sort of discussion I, 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 I have. You know, it's amazing. It's, it's it's exciting, but then the other flip side is it's going to certainly make a lot of current positions obsolete or displace the workforce. Yes, it's that's a and, it's uh, just a full stop. Yes, there's there's disruption coming, like every other time we've had an industrial revolution. You know, when um, and I I think that there's a lot of discussion right now. Elon Musk has mentioned about the need for regulation, and others are saying, well, hey, other countries aren't regulating, so it's kind of a as they figure out which way to go, I think uh, I, I I think the industries will take upon themselves their own life and uh, and and you know I I think all we have to do is look forward to excitement of this change coming and uh, and realize that when change comes, it's also going to impact us and our life. Um, Keith, I want to move into uh, other projects that you're involved with, other projects or causes outside sure. of PTC. Oh, I've got a, a lot of places I spend time uh, over behind me. I don't know if it's visible, but there's a first robotics medallion. Uh, so from some, I've been involved with first robotics and in general, a lot of mentoring students in STEM. I'm on the board of a, of a STEM education company based in Connecticut uh, that, uh, you know, that does in, in school and outside of school. STEM education has far more demand than they can find teachers to hire right now. 
So if anybody out there is in that in that neighborhood that feels passionate about educating young children up through high school in STEM and is looking for something to do, I know where you can work. <laughs> and there's a mass, he's got 6X demand when he can find people to, to provide. And we're talking about how technology could maybe solve some of that capacity problems in, in that business. Uh, I spent a lot of time with first, I, I spent a lot of time with a couple with an organization called Defy Ventures. Defy Ventures teaches entrepreneurship to formerly incarcerated people because it is by far the number one way to prevent recidivism and, and empower those folks to take control of their lives. Uh, that, that group is only active in a few states. Uh, Illinois is one of them. So I've been lucky to be able to spend some time with them and I would encourage anybody to take a look if you think that's an interesting topic. Um, I have a few things that we do uh, related. We do a lot of volunteering with St. Jude. The like I mentioned, we have I think I mentioned we have a horse farm. Uh, St. Jude has a number of things they do in our area related to horses, and we're, we're kind of deeply involved in that. Uh, we have a number of people that we've hired in our business that are former St. Jude kids, and spend a lot of time. That's a, I think it's a pretty strong organization. Uh, on my own, outside of PTC work, outside of the vet clinics and the other things. I have, uh, my, my daughter has uh, a number of autoimmune issues. My, both my son and my daughter both have some autoimmune issues. My daughter has more of them and I've been watching how strong she's been and working through a lot of those challenges, which have been pretty onerous in a lot of ways, physical, uh, mental, and other things. She's been able to train her own service dog. She's really established quite a bit more physical strength through horseback riding, which has been more effective for her than any, any kind of medically prescribed uh, physical therapy or OT that we've been through. Not that those have been ineffective, but the horseback riding's far and away really built up her strength. Uh, and that has really led me to think about when you know, people that have disabilities and how people are affected by that, we're in a position where we were able to, we have a horse farm. We were able to provide her you know, with the dog that she was able to train on her own to become a service dog. But if you want to buy a service dog, it's twenty five to $45,000. The median U.S. incomes in the fifties, so that would put it out of reach for a great number of people, and and that's just one way to help someone who has a disability. It's a fantastic way. So I started to look towards this, uh, you know, inspired a lot by Peter in the A three sixty community. What what sort of massively transformative purpose could be formed around that? And over years, the the idea of being able to provide anyone with a disability the the tools, the what they need to, to be able to fulfill their potential has really sort of coalesced for me and some of the moonshots that I've really recently coalesced around how do you how do you go do that is around this idea of service dogs and, and availability. And what if I could make service dogs about a million times more available than they are today? If we were doing a simple graph, you could picture a very tall stack of people who could benefit from a service dog, a vanishingly small stack of dogs actually that go into training each year of which almost 70% wash out of training, don't actually make it. So the ones that are left are even more vanishingly small. And then there's an even larger stack of dogs that are never evaluated, never even get a chance to think about could they become a service dog. And there's some good reasons for that and some bad reasons for that. So I started thinking about that. How, how could I use technology to try to solve that problem? And between looking at availability, looking at the time it takes to train effectively, becoming, getting that 70% washout rate down to something in the single digits, increasing the number of trainers, uh, increasing, you know, increasing the skill, the speed to skill, to become a qualified trainer that could actually do a good job. There's a, like five or six factors that I'm looking at. And by making each one of them a bit better, you can get to a million times more 
service dog availability, which puts a massive dent in that problem pretty fast if I can get there. But I've got, so I've got the, the why to do it and I've got the what I want to do pretty clear in my head. The how, which actually I, yeah, I think really is good to come third, not first. <laughs> I'm still working on. I've got it. I've got ideas on that, but that's an area where, you know, looking for people that are in, that find find that intriguing, think they want, might be able to help. Looking for networks and partnerships to form on that front. I don't know that it's a business. It's not important to me that it's a business. It's important to me that I try to figure it out. I love it. it you know, in in causes, getting behind causes like this and benefiting that group of, of individuals that have challenges in life with autoimmune deficiencies and all the other disabilities. I, I believe that uh, people, as they bring solutions to the table, or you know, just bless human, uh, humankind um, as an entirety. It's, uh, you know, it's one thing's for certain. All we have is time um, in life, being mortal. And we go through life, the more we can find solutions to benefit and bless the lives of others. I think it, it gives her more fulfillment to our own life. So I, I've enjoyed, uh, I've been proud of, couldn't be more proud of my daughter and the inspiration she's given me watching her work through and overcome these. It has not been easy. Uh, it you know, continues to not be easy some days, but uh, that's been you know a real motivator for me. There's, there's one other thing that I forgot to mention that I do, my wife and I both spend time with. It's an organization called CASA which may or may not be familiar to people, but uh, it is an organization that is that supports children who are, in, quote unquote, in the system in the United States, who are in the system because their parents or guardians have been accused of neglect or abuse. And the system isn't great. I don't think that's going to be shocking news to anyone who's paid any attention at all. But the, right. the system also allows for some things like this to happen. So as, a, as a CASA, you are actually an officer of the court and we work directly with the kids and are only there for the kids. We actually report directly to the judge through no one, not through a lawyer or anybody else about what the kids actually want to have happen, which is sometimes unbelievably difficult. Uh, the, some of these kids are in heart-wrenching situations. Uh, you know, some of them are in fairly stable foster homes and the goal is actually to get them back to a, a quality, loving, safe environment with their natural parents. That is actually the primary goal all the time. But sometimes that, that reality can't be achieved. And you know, we're there to help look out for those kids and make, make their wishes directly known to the judge in the case, which you know, there's, there's things like a guardian ad litem. That's, that's not what they do. That, that's a, a, a guardian of the children for the duration of the trial. They're not really there reporting to the judge about what the kids want. This is a, it's a, it's an organization we found uh, a lot of a value in and then you know, want to talk about a year, advocate for it in case anybody listening would like to see themselves get involved. So Keith, how would a person go about contacting you? Um, you, you you're behind a lot of really, really good causes. Uh, well, I'd, I have no problem just giving my my personal email here. I think that's fine. It's my last name, dot my first name, G-A-R-G-I-U-L-O dot Keith, K-E-I-T-H at gmail.com. It's probably the easiest way to do it. That, that email will be there forever. Well, Keith, it's been a pleasure having you with us today on American Dreams. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation.